Welcome to NetSmart Care Threads, a podcast where human services and post-acute leaders across the healthcare continuum come together to discuss industry trends, challenges, and opportunities. Listen as we uncover real stories about how to innovate and improve the quality of care for the communities we serve. Let's get into the show. Hello and welcome. My name is Trisha Zerker. I serve as one of the directors of integrated care here at NetSmart. The topic for today's episode is A-plus care for addiction, when the world feels like it's earning a D. We all know that if you browse any news source today, you'll likely find the word addiction, and it's going to hit more than one headline, often with a focus on opioids, gaming, alcohol, eating, and gambling. While this can be extremely overwhelming, here is some really good news. There are many roads to recovery. Today, we have an incredible group of women here to talk about where addiction treatment stands, what's being done to combat crisis, and how technology plays a significant role. They'll share how they recognize their population most in need, they identified a care plan for them, and aligned those tools to improve health and measure impact along the way. I wanna welcome our special guest, Rochelle Castro, Christy Majors, Melanie Conforti, and Mary Ward from McLeod Addictive Disease Center. Welcome and thank you for being here. To provide a framework for our discussion today, I wanted to have a brief review regarding some of the factors that contribute to addiction. The first one everyone is very aware of, it's been studied for years and years in the research, it suggests that genetics plays a role in addictive behavior. But what has been the impact of our prescribing habits and reimbursement policies? Our prescribing practices have resulted in an increased availability of prescription opioids. And around 2012 to 2014 timeframe, we wrote over 250 million scripts for painkillers. That's enough for every adult in the United States. We often over-prescribe due to the use of alternative pain remedies and lack of reimbursement for those alternatives. The next one that I wanna talk to you about is dual diagnosis. Dual diagnosis has led to self-medication for SMI, depression, PTSD, and anxiety disorders. And I talk about this all the time when I'm helping certify individuals to become mental health first aiders. According to the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Care Administration, nearly 9 million individuals have a co-occurring illness, yet only 7% of these individuals are receiving treatment for both conditions, and almost 60% receive no treatment at all. So simply put, there needs to be greater awareness of comorbidity. One of the disorders goes undiagnosed and untreated far too many times. So once the treatment for coexisting conditions improves, I believe this will help reduce the social stigma that helps make people reluctant to pursue that treatment that they dearly need. The addiction crisis was already a massive problem throughout the United States, but unfortunately, 2020 has only made that problem worse. I added a fifth item recently, and that is obviously COVID-19. So stay-at-home orders means that more people were drinking and using, and they were doing that alone. People were relapsing behind closed doors. According to the Overdose Detection Mapping Program, more than 40 states are showing higher numbers of opioid-related fatalities since March. We're going to talk more about this momentarily with our special guest, 
But the point I want to make is many organizations across the country have to address all five of these simultaneously. And they have to do that while at the same time being resilient and growing their organization. And in a few moments, I'm gonna introduce you to four women who represent one of those powerful organizations. The stats that you see here represent many types of addictions. That's anything from gaming, gambling, eating disorders, substance use, and opioids. Almost 21 million Americans have at least one addiction, and we learned again that only 10% of them have received treatment. However, with all of these bleak numbers, there's some progress that has emerged. Heavy-handed restrictions on treating addiction were loosened during the pandemic. Federal and state agencies acted promptly to prevent such deaths by making it easier for people in need to get the medications needed. So this change, it was overdue. It, it shouldn't be temporary at all. Far too long, the stigma attached to such treatment has helped sustain our opioid crisis. And quite unexpectedly though, COVID-19 has shown a better way to address that problem. And so at this time, I would like to introduce you to Rochelle, Melanie, Christy, and Mary from McLeod Addictive Disease. Mary, I love the rich history um, of this organization. So I know it was formed in the 1960s. It was founded by a female pediatrician. And I consider that to be um, a pioneer at that time. Will you kick us off and tell us why that is important to you? And what are some benefits that have impacted your organization because of that? Sure, Tricia. You know, again, when you think about what was happening in the 1960s, for not only someone to start the conversation about addiction, but no less a female pediatrician who starts waving a flag in the rural South at that time um, to say, hey, there's a problem in our community. We're seeing a bunch of young people coming in to see me as a pediatrician with substance use disorder. Again, it was the 1960s. It was sex, drugs, rock and roll, and we have a pioneer who's saying this is a problem. She gets together with a UNC Charlotte psychiatry student, and together they start a crisis center in the basement of a YMCA to try and help people who are struggling with addiction find someone that they can trust and talk to. We evolved as an organization in the early 1970s by seeing Vietnam veterans return back to our community addicted to heroin. And so McLeod Center became one of the first in the state of North Carolina to begin treating opioid use disorder with methadone. And today we have nine care locations in both the Piedmont and western parts of North Carolina and have grown to an organization that has 230 full and part-time staff, and we serve almost 2,800 individuals at any given point in time in both medication-assisted treatment services and non-medication-assisted treatment services in both rural as well as urban areas of North Carolina. We started in Mecklenburg County. Charlotte is our headquarters. We grew into Gaston and then further up north in Catawba and Iredale, then back to Cabarrus Union, and then further into Caldwell and McDowell County. So any presentation we are doing right now, we would be remiss if we did not talk about the impact of the pandemic 
and the ongoing impacts of COVID-19 on addictions and also on behavioral health organizations. But Mary, can you also talk to us about the organizational impacts of COVID-19 and your response? Well, Tricia, when March of 2020 hit, we had just had our March board meeting. And I remember telling our board of trustees, you know, there's something going on here. Not quite sure what's happening, but, but we're going to keep our eye on it. And three days later, the entire world stopped. The first thing that we did when the governor sent everyone home and basically put stay in place orders out, we were deemed an essential service, which meant our locations could not close. We still had to keep operations running, but we had to do it in a way that was as safe as possible. And so my first reaction to our teams was don't lose a patient. Whatever we have to do to stay connected to patients, don't lose them because as many other behavioral health providers in the community can relate, we treat patients in person. We do our therapies in person. Before the pandemic, patients and clients would come to see us and sit with us in a physical brick and mortar space. And our whole world just blew up when the pandemic was declared. Regulations started changing quickly. We were struggling with technology. And that's really where we had to do some incredible lifts incredibly quickly because the only thing we knew to do at first was stay connected by telephone. Because at the time the pandemic was declared, we had about 10 virtual licenses that allowed us to get through our firewalls and into our electronic medical record remotely. And that was really reserved for just leadership staff. But when we sent 62% of our employees home and said, don't lose a patient, many of them were left scrambling. So Christy, I'm gonna pass the mic to you. Tell everybody how we did this. Thanks, Mary. Well, we did it with a lot of creativity and willingness to try things in a totally different way than we had ever tried them before in our space and in our organization. You know, I'll never forget, it was Friday, March 13th, um, and I was home sitting at my dining room table thinking, goodness, how are we going to make this happen? And really, it was just everyone being willing to try something new. As Mary said, we only had about 10 VPN licenses that allowed us to get into our firewall. And we've had even less hardware. You know, we had maybe five or six laptops in the organization. And so, you know, we sent everyone home and we had to figure out software and hardware. We had to figure out how to help a staff that may not have all the technology skills that they needed to be successful in a remote environment. And so, you know, we started first by looking at the regulations that were changing quickly and saying, you know, what can we do and what are we willing to do? Having gone from being not able to do any telehealth to being told, hey, you can do telehealth on pretty much any platform that you want, you know, we had some decisions to make. And we weren't comfortable using a platform that didn't have the security that most medical professions would require that we're allowed to do telehealth. So we had to pick a telehealth provider that did that. We had to set up the contracts that were required for that. We had to train our organization on how to use it. We had to create telehealth consent and get our staff to sign them to say, yes, we understand what we're doing and how we're going to do it. And so we had to get that whole infrastructure up and running. 
and we had to do it quickly. And then we had to teach the patients how to use this technology. And so we figured out how to keep our locations open and safe. So even if a counselor wasn't on site, a patient could come in, use an iPad and connect with a counselor uh, remotely. And so we had to train them on how to do that. So it was a lot of just moving parts, trying to keep those patients. As Mary said, that was our directive. At the very beginning, we honestly didn't worry about getting paid. We just worried about connecting with our patients and then figuring out how to build a platform that would be sustainable um, easy to use and easy to access. And so in addition to the technology, the other way that we had to look at how to take care of patients is, you know, who was still going to be coming into the clinic. And so we had folks who were coming in person still to, to see us some, um, some who were on telehealth and some who, again, were still on the phone. And Melanie, I'm going to pass it to you to talk a little bit more about how we decided who could stay home and who had to come in and see us. Thanks, Christy. So as Mary said, our goal is always to keep our patients engaged in treatment and maintain easy access to treatment. And as Trisha had described, the need during this time had increased and we had to meet that demand. So there were two areas of focus from the beginning, and that was how we're going to change our care delivery with our existing patients and then how are we going to continue to admit patients. So on March 13th, when we made that decision, we knew we had to decrease our volume in our clinic so to keep our patients and our staff safe. Due to the deployment of the telephones, we were able to quickly um, begin the telephonic sessions. And despite this telephonic capability, we still were challenged with the need to decrease our volume. And this, in addition to you know, the distancing and the telephonic appointments, we had been given authorization from the state to have state exceptions for our patients to have take-home medication. Within a week, we had thoroughly assessed all of our patients in all eight locations and due to the exception we were able to do with that regulation lift, we were able to provide over 1,600 patients with either take-homes for the first time or an extension of their take-homes. And this was huge for our patients. Looking at this over time has allowed us to look at those outcomes and receive feedback from our patients. Many, given this additional flexibility, have been motivated to reach the next level in their treatment, as they can see how the progression in getting well has led to more time back in their day. So the second area of focus for us was scheduling our patients. Prior to the pandemic, we were developing a pilot project to begin scheduling our intake. We met resistance in many focus groups of both staff and existing patients, with the main pushback being that our patients would not show up for appointments. But with the shift in the needs due to the pandemic, we began the scheduling process and it worked. Though challenging, the pandemic led to many of the positive changes in our care delivery, and the technology has allowed us to leverage clinicians throughout the organization to provide care. And I will turn it over to Rochelle to speak about changes within the residential and treatment services. Thanks, Melanie. Our outpatient residential and criminal justice services face different challenges. Um, and staff, too, were unfamiliar. We've talked about they were not comfortable providing that technology. So the focus at first was to make sure we weren't losing patients, but also to make sure our staff felt comfortable providing those services in this new arena. The next thing we did was establish expectations and boundaries with the patients about appropriate behaviors um, and the use of technology while in group sessions. Once we began holding the groups virtually, most clients reported they felt more comfortable participating in groups. Being in their home environment made them feel more relaxed and, and made it better able for them to share. The ability for us to offer virtual groups resulted in people choosing to enter our treatment modalities that may not have had the option before um, had they been required to be there in person. 
we have seen people who are required to travel for their job who are able to complete group sessions anywhere, whether they're in North Carolina or California. We've seen pilots who have chosen to be part of our group who maybe wouldn't have been comfortable doing so beforehand. Criminal justice experienced a sharp decline when our court system shut down. So the case managers in those programs were challenged to remain in contact with their clients and the probation officers using technology in ways they hadn't done before COVID. Once again, our clients appreciate being able to virtually access their case managers for several different reasons. Many of them do not have reliable transportation and didn't have to worry about catching public transportation, which may not have been on time. They also said being able to meet virtually decreased the amount of time that they had to be away from their job. Again, people report feeling more comfortable being virtual in their own homes, not risking exposing themselves and others to COVID. We've learned valuable lessons throughout this experience that we can do hard things as a team, that we are never going to be perfect, but it's okay. We're learning together. We have learned so much about our technology over the past year and a half, and we've just really come together as a team to make sure that we're providing appropriate care for our patients. Thank you so much for that information. You know, during the last year, our vocabulary has really shifted somewhat largely, if not 100%, due to our current environment. We have incorporated words or phrases such as the new normal, which I know most people have heard and probably said, the next normal, post-COVID world, the great reset. Those are all descriptors as to how we're describing the future. And while all of these terms are valid, one word that I'm not hearing you know, or that is used less often to describe the future is opportunity. And simply put, opportunity is a set of circumstances that makes it possible to do something. And with opportunity comes innovation and the ability to transform how we deliver care. This organization has embraced the opportunity they were given as a result of the pandemic. So Mary, can you share with us what the future looks like for addiction treatment and behavioral health? Trisha, the future for the field is wide open. What the pandemic did was it let the genie out of the bottle. In a field with such heavy regulation, when that regulation relaxed and organizations like ours and many others were able to show that we can still care for patients and do it without the stringent box checking form filling out that so much regulation requires, and we didn't lose patients. We didn't have patients die or overdose because they got extra take-home medication that perhaps they weren't allowed to have before the pandemic. We kept patients well. And when you think about everything that everyone has faced during this pandemic, to me, that's nothing short of remarkable. Our team talked about how we locked arms. We said we were going to do this. We said we weren't going to sit back or give up or stick our heads in the sand. We stayed connected to patients, and it mattered to them. And I think in a time where before the pandemic, patients were dependent on a treatment provider. They expected someone to be there. 
we were still there with them even through a pandemic. However, we needed to stay connected to them. And this has really thrown the playbook for our organization, if you will, out the window. And it's allowed us to really look at how are we meeting patients' needs? How can we meet patients' needs better? And how are we leveraging technology to increase access to care? When patients feel more in control of their treatment, you're gonna see better outcomes. And that's what the pandemic did. It allowed us to work closer with patients in a way that put them in control of their treatment. And that's what we heard from several of them. I had the great fortune to sit with many of our patients that were receiving remote care and their therapist virtually. So it was me, the patient, and their therapist. And I heard directly from them how telehealth has made a difference in the way that they've been able to manage through this pandemic. And that's the future of our field. It's being able to give patients choice in how they received care, because up until this point, they didn't have it. So that's what's been great about the pandemic. And what we have done as an organization has become better data gatherers, better observers of the organization's behavior both our staff as well as our patients. And we're putting that together in a story that really is gonna speak to how the future of care delivery needs to remain focused on the patient. And we have to change to meet their needs rather than operating under a lot of antiquated regulation that requires a patient to fit into the box that we create. This is what's exciting about where we are. You know, I feel like as a field, we have been climbing this roller coaster. You know how you feel when you're going up a hill on a roller coaster and you're so excited about what might be on the other side and you know it's gonna be exciting and you're not quite sure what it's gonna be. Well, this is where we are right now. And that's what's exciting about this to me, because so many people I have an opportunity to share with look at me kind of sideways when I say the pandemic was the best thing that ever happened to our business. It broke us of a lot of institutional thinking. You know, we've been in business since 1969. And we've been doing things the same way because that's the way regulation allowed. And we've just always done it that way. Well, we're at the top of that roller coaster now. And we're about to come over the crest. And we're going to ride the future of work with patients with both addictive disorders, mental health disorders, and finally being able to blend in their medical care as well. Because for so long, we have treated the head like it was separate from the rest of the body. Thank you so much, Mary. I love, love how you ended that um, in your vision and views of integrated care. I'm extremely energized by this entire conversation. I know all of our listeners are as well. 
I just want to thank our esteemed panel one more time for their insights today and for talking to us and really showing us what demonstrating an A-plus for addiction care organizations look like. Thank you so much to the entire group and have a wonderful day. At NetSmart, we understand the challenges facing provider organizations. Our team will help you navigate changing value-based care models with solutions and services that make person-centered care a reality. We'll equip you with technology and services that provide holistic, real-time views of care histories that inform better decision-making and better outcomes. Visit us today at ntst.com. NetSmart, serving you so you can serve others. Thanks for listening to the NetSmart Care Threads podcast. Through collaboration and conversation, we can work together to make healthcare more connected than ever before and better support the communities we serve. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you use Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars that you think the podcast deserves. Until next time.